Well, thank you, worship team, and thank you again for being with us this morning. If you have a Bible with you, open up to Deuteronomy chapter 6. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's all right. You can look on the screens. We'll have the scripture up there uh, for you as well. So we are continuing. We're now in week four of our series called Home Life. And so this is going to be a six-week series. And so what we're doing is we are looking through the different aspects of living our lives for Christ at home. Right? How does Jesus impact our daily walk in our homes? We talk a lot about being a witness in the world. We talk a lot about worship here at church. But how do you spend your time at home pursuing Christ? That's really what we're talking about. And today is right in line with that. We're going to be talking about the purpose of parenting. So before we dig into that, let me pray. And then we'll, we'll see what God has for us today. Lord Jesus, again, we're so thankful that we get to be here that we get to worship, that we get to open up your word, and that we get to hear from you and your Holy Spirit. So, Spirit, would you speak into our hearts your truth, the truth of God, the truth of Christ. And Jesus, may your name be glorified as we think about our home life, Lord, whether someone here is a parent or not, or a grandparent. Lord, it doesn't matter the stage of life. This is an important topic in today's world for all of us to think through as Christians. So give us great wisdom and give us great motivation as we leave here today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, my youngest child, Hudson, he is two years old. He had his first dentist appointment. Uh, this is about a week and a half ago, and the, the appointment was early. It was at 7.30 a.m., and so uh, I bravely said I would take my son to the, his first dentist appointment. So we get him in the car, and we had even practiced the night before. Well, I didn't practice pulling his teeth out or anything. That sounds weird. Uh, you know, we let his little sister pretend to be the dentist, and, and we really you know, say, ah, oh, you're going to have to open your mouth. You're going to have to let the dentist look at your mouth. So we went through all of that, really prepped him real good. And, and so I put him in the car, buckle him up. We, we start driving, and then I realized that I wasn't quite sure where the dentist office was. So I pull out of the neighborhood and I start calling my wife. And uh, as much as I would love to blame this on her, it's not her fault, but she didn't answer her phone, okay? And so we, you know, I keep driving, I keep trying to call, I, I, I turn on to Butler and I, then I get off on Gate Parkway and I'm going in the general direction that I know they have visited some kind of physician before, okay? And so uh, I, I Google, you know, kids dentist and I find one. And so I go up to the dentist office and nobody's there, uh, at least not in the parking lot, but I get him out. I know, well, it's early. We're probably the first appointment. <clears throat> Go up to the door. The door is locked. A receptionist sees me, comes and opens the door and she opens the door and she says, oh, is this Hudson? And I'm like, yes, yes, this is Hudson. I wish that was the end of the story. So we go in, she turns the light on to the fish tank and she asks to see my driver's license, looks at it. Everything, I guess, is fine. She sits down at the reception desk, right? And she starts pulling up the, the file and she says, okay, now keep in mind, first trip to the dentist, right? Okay, so he's going to get a couple of fillings and a crown. And I'm like, hang on, whoa. <laughs> this is his first trip to the dentist. I don't think he's getting that kind of stuff, right? What's the last name? Wilkes. Oh, no, that's not, that's not the right Hudson. Oh, well, his older siblings come here, Harper and Barrett. Are they in the file? Nope, nothing. Then I realized, 
I was at the wrong dentist office. Yes, I took my child just the other week to the wrong dentist. But I mean, seriously though, what are the chances that another Hudson, you know what I mean, would have an appointment first in the morning at the wrong dentist? I mean, that's crazy. Well, here's the thing, and here's the reason I tell you that story today. Number one, to show you that I do not have it all figured out when it comes to parenting, obviously, all right? But also, any other dads out there, I'm sure, maybe you've never taken your child to the wrong dentist, but I'm sure you have a story or two as well. But here's the thing. I tell you that story to tell you this. Parenting is hard. It's hard. Now, I made it a little harder than it needs to be that day. Going to the right dentist, yes, that's very important. You should. But the most important thing you can do for your kids is to lead them to become a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of important things we need to make sure we get right. But the one thing that we have to get right is that we are seeking to raise our children to love the Lord. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20 on the screens. We think of this verse often when we talk about missions. But have you ever thought of this verse being applied to your home? We call this the Great Commission. Jesus told his disciples before he ascended into heaven, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christian author Chap Bettis says in his book, The Disciple-Making Parent, he says, The Great Commission is a call for followers of Jesus Christ to reach out to our world, to our towns, and to our neighborhoods. But in the Great Commission, there is also a call to make disciples in our own families. Parenting is a commission to do all we can to raise our children to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. So the main point I want us to see in today's sermon is this, the purpose of parenting, whether you walked in this room thinking this or knowing this or never hearing this before, here's what the Bible tells us. The purpose of parenting is to make disciples. It's to apply the Great Commission to your own home. Authors Matt Chandler and Adam Griffin in their book, Family Discipleship, say this, family discipleship is leading your home by doing whatever you can, whenever you can, to help your family become friends and followers of Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible has a lot to say about this aspect of family discipleship, of parents or guardians or grandparents taking charge and leading their kids to understand truths about who Jesus is and what he's done. The Bible has a lot to say about parenting. But today I want us to focus mostly on one passage, and that's in Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 9. So I want us to look and walk through that section of Scripture, and what we will see are some amazing truths about Christian parenting. So here's some key takeaways from Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. The first one that we're going to see is this. Parent in the context of God's redemptive story. As parents, we should be parenting, thinking about the larger story of God sending Christ to rescue us from our sins. 
Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Those verses tell us that in the context of making disciples, now this was true for Israel then, but now on this side of the cross it's true for us as followers of Jesus now, right? In the context of making followers of Jesus, we have to understand that we are such or we are part of such a larger story going on around us than we can even fathom. You see, Moses is speaking to the people of Israel here in a context of that larger story. And so if you know the story of the Old Testament, sin entered the world very early on in human existence, and that disrupted everything. Mostly, namely, sin separated humans from God. And so we cannot live in the presence of God because he is perfect and holy and we are utterly wicked and sinful in our own hearts. We have chosen, all of us, right, have fallen short of his glory. We have chosen to worship and love and give ourselves to other things in this world besides God himself. So we can't have a relationship with him. That's not a relationship, right? That's a rebellion. And so that's what we're all guilty of. But God did not leave the human race along with no way out or no way of escape from this great rebellious problem of sin we have in our hearts. He started by calling a man named Abraham in the Old Testament and telling Abraham that he was going to make a great family out of him and that his family would expand and, and produce and multiply around the earth and Long, long time passes, right? And then one of Abraham's descendants, Jesus Christ himself, comes to earth and does what no one else in the Old Testament could do. Lived a life pleasing to God, perfectly obedient. And then because he was perfect, he actually sacrificed himself for the sins of mankind. He was the only one qualified to pay the penalty of sin because he lived a perfect life. And so if we turn to Christ, right, and then he rose from the grave and he defeated the power of death, right, if we turn to Christ and we repent of our sin, then that power, that salvation power becomes ours in Christ. And so that's the story of redemption that every single follower of Jesus is a part of. We like to make our lives all about us and we're so self-centered and narcissistic sometimes. But the story of your life is, if you were a follower of Jesus, is, such, is part of such a much larger, greater story. It's the story of God's rescue mission to save humanity. You're a part of that. But notice the emphasis then that Moses is speaking to Israel here so long before Christ came to earth. The emphasis here on the future and the sustainability of this plan, this redemptive plan through prolonged obedience. 
Look what he says in verse 2. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. So they're already thinking about your grandkids when it comes to walking in obedience with the Lord in context of this larger story. For God's, see, God intends for his truth to be passed down from generation to generation so that that redemptive rescue mission that he's accomplishing, that's unfolding before our eyes, right? So that it can continue to unfold as his people now are his vessels of truth and love and obey him. So followers of Jesus in this world must continue to pass on the truth of God from generation to generation as God uses his people, the church now. In this age, in this era of human history, God uses his church to reach this world with that great redemptive good news, what Christ has done. So we must pass on that truth to the next generation. We must always be thinking ahead. So the discipleship, or lack thereof, that's happening inside your home, that matters to all of us. And it affects all of God's people, the church collectively, who are living on mission for God. If you are a Christian, your home, it's not some isolated fortress, right? Where you think that you can just, you know, lock yourself away from the world and not have, and that, that's your place of refuge. And listen, yes, a home should be a place of refuge in many ways, but that's not the primary intent of your home. You see, if you're a Christian, your home is an outpost of the church. It's not the church, but when you leave here, you're still the church. The church is not a building. So you should see your home as like an outpost of the church's mission. So in this passage, it was true for Israel, but now it's true for the church. It's true for us to raise up that next generation of disciples. So parents, that is the context in which you are parenting. That's the greatest context you could even imagine. That's what you have going on in your home. It's the rescue mission of God, the great commission of Jesus. So that's the first thing we see in verses 1 through 3 there of Deuteronomy 6. But the second thing I want us to take away from this, this section of Scripture is this. We should parent with one overarching goal, and that's love for God. And there's so many goals that you may have for your kids. You want them to get a good education. You want to make sure that they are uh, nutritious and, and physically fit. You want to make sure that they're smart and that they maybe have good physical abilities and play sports well. There's so much time and energy and money that we pump into our kids' lives to try to guarantee success in all the different ways that we think they should be successful. But with verse 2 in mind, here in Deuteronomy 6, your son and your son's son, right? Already thinking about how our children and their children will live out God's redemptive plan in this world. I want you to listen now to verses 4 through 9. What is really, what's really the goal of our parenting? Here's what, here's what the Lord says. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now there's a lot that we can unpack in these verses, but the first thing that we need to see is the most important thing here is love for God. Verses four through six here are telling us what all of God's people need to know of any age, parent or not, that God exclusively deserves all of our affection, all of our adoration. And like I just said at the beginning, right? This has been our problem from day one. We have given our love, we have given our affection and our adoration to all kinds of other things, not exclusively God. We don't find our rest and our peace and our joy primarily in him. Now, he may be a nice attachment, right? So we come to church to, make, to keep ourselves feeling good and moral and, and have a good appearance to society. Oh, I'm a good person because I attend church. So sure, God's a nice attachment to all those other loves and all those affections and all those other adorations, but he's not center. He's not primary in many of our hearts. But these scriptures tell us the center of our very being, our thoughts, our passions, our affections, our energies, our efforts, all of this must be centered around the one and the only true God. We cannot put any other little G gods ahead of him. We cannot put any other loves ahead of him. You know, when Jesus was asked what the greatest command in all the Bible is, and all of scripture was, this is what he said. Look at this in Matthew 22. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Here's what Jesus said. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Jesus says there is nothing more important than getting that right. Because here's the thing. If we don't get that right, nothing else will be right. Now, again, you can kind of fake it till you make it sort of thing through life, right? You can have the appearance of loving God and you can kind of get by in many areas of life, your marriage, parenting, your finances. But ultimately, if all aspects holistically in your life do not wrap themselves around the center of love for God, things will fall apart. So when we think in that context about parenting, If love for God is not the theme, the visible, apparent, known, clear theme of our homes, then the reality is love for something else will be. Oh, your home has a theme. You have a great love. Your children know what you love. You know, I think many parents today fall in love with ideas. We love the idea of being known as a Christian family. But maybe you don't actually read or study the Bible together as a family. Maybe you love the idea of your kids loving God supremely more than anything else, but what are you actually showing them? Maybe you're showing them a lack of commitment 
to God and to the church. And so in their minds, they're growing up thinking that those things are important, but they're not primary. A real love for God in your home will be evident in the way you prioritize your home for yourself first and for your kids. You know, it's worth pointing out here in verses one through three that we just read in Deuteronomy six. You know, it's, it's important to see there that God has good intentions. God has good intentions for his people. He wants his people to succeed. And he gives them assurance that they will succeed if they make him their supreme love. So parents, know this. God wants you to succeed in raising your children. And he's equipped you to do so. But maybe, maybe parents need to redefine their definition of success. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe the problem is not God failing in some way. But maybe the problem is us failing by showing our kids that success is all the things the world defines it by but not actual love for God. Again, nice attachment to the life. Most parents don't lack motivation and hard work. It's just that our loves are out of whack. Maybe all of your heart, soul, and might, your energy is misdirected to non-spiritual things, to other loves. So parents, your children will learn. They're going to learn just through observation what is most important in life to you and what you love the most. And they're going to mimic that. So the command is clear for all of us. Hey, listen, whether you're a parent or not, whether you're a parent or not, being created in the image of God, we were made to love and give ourselves in devotion to something. So if God is not that something, that person, something or someone or something will be. Matt Chandler and Adam Griffin say in their book, one of the best ways you can love your child well is by loving your God well. Your kids learn how to love God by watching how you love God. So now the question becomes, okay, how, how can we pass this love for God from our own hearts to the hearts of our kids? How can we strive to do that? How can they know the love of God through us leading them to know it? How do we pass that on to them? Well, I think that's what verses 7 through 9 are telling us in Deuteronomy 6. I think we see three very practical subpoints here of how we can show our kids and teach them to love God. So if you're not taking notes already and you're a parent, start right here, okay? Here we go. The first thing, structured teaching. How can you pass your love to God to your kids? I think through structured teaching. I think that's what verse 7 is telling us. It's pretty clear, actually. Look at this. Verse 7 again, you shall teach your kids. You shall teach them diligently, not half-heartedly, not when you feel like it. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You know, it's really hard to love something that you don't know much about, right? Like, if one of you tells me about some show that you saw on Netflix, I've never seen it. And you're like, oh man, it's so funny. You gotta watch it, right? I'm like, I've never seen it. It's not funny to me, right? But you're like, no, but I love it. It's great. Well, that's great, but I've never seen it, right? It's kind of the same thing when you're trying to express love 
and talk about something to someone else, to your kids about God, right? You can't love something that they don't know much about. So the question is then, how are we informing them about who God is and about the Bible? Where, what place, what physical place should be the place where your children are mostly learning about God and the Bible? Now, most parents probably, the first thing that pops into our minds is, well, isn't that what this is for? Church, right? I've got elementary school kids and kids worship right now. I've got some kids on the preschool hall right now. Right? My students, just my, my teenagers just came down from learning about, I mean, this is what church is for, right? Well, that's not really what God's word says. Verse 7 here says, you, parent, shall teach your children diligently. Paul says something very similar in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline of and instruction of the Lord. So whether you realize it or not, whether you like it or not, parents, the primary place where discipleship and teaching of God's word needs to happen first, first, is in your homes. Now, that's not to say that the church doesn't play a significant role. Absolutely the church does. Parent or not, Right? Whether you have kids or not, we all, as a church family, play a vital role in the process of raising up the next generation in God's great redemptive plan. Right? We, we play a great role in that collectively as a church. And so we can all have influence on the next generation, whether you have a kid or not. But in this raising up of that next generation of Christ followers, parents, you are driving that vehicle. Right? So if you think of your child's discipleship as a vehicle, all right? So for most, well, for us, it's a Honda Odyssey. You know what I mean? Never thought I'd be a minivan dad, but here I am, and I'm proud of it. Taking my kids to all the wrong dentist. All right. But here's the thing, right? Parents, if you're driving that vehicle of discipleship, then where's the church in it? The church is in the passenger seat. So the church is there, and we're here at Kernan. We're here to help you. We, we have structured our preschool kids and student ministry in a way right, through curriculum, right, shared curriculum, the gospel project. You know this, adults, as you're learning the gospel project in community groups on Sunday mornings, your kids are learning the same Bible passage. So we have tried to set it up and make it easy so that when you do get in your minivan or you do get in your car and you are driving home, right, after your kids, you know, after the initial argument about whether or not they can have the lollipop they got in kid group, right, before lunch, after that argument, right, the next thing, is, hey kids, what did you guys learn about today, right? Did you guys learn the, about King David? Did you learn about how Jesus is our true king? And they're like, yeah, how'd you know that? Well, we studied the same thing. So we've tried to even set it up and make it easy for parents, right? Here at Kernan to really engage in conversation and to start teaching. So the church's role is to come alongside you, parents, in that driver's seat. But parents, the burden is first on you. So, to do that, you're going to have to teach your kids about God and about the Bible. And to do that diligently, you will have to set aside time in your daily or weekly schedule. You're going to have to be consistent with it. And you're going to have to lean heavily on age-appropriate resources. That's a good thing. So let me just kind of give you an example. So in the Wilkes home, uh, our kids are currently 6, 5, and 2. 
All right? So thank you for the prayers. So, <clears throat> so this is going to look different in our house than it may yours, of course, depending on the age of your kids, okay? But nonetheless, nonetheless, here's just the simple approach that we're using right now. So my wife, Christy, is teaching them in the mornings through catechism questions. Now, what is that, right? Well, catechism questions are, are just short, memorable questions and answers about God and theology. And at first, you know, you think, well, that kind of sounds like that's going to just fly over their heads, right? Well, that's kind of the point in a way, because the point of using good catechism questions and answers is to memorize it and instill God's truth in their hearts and minds so that as they do continue to mature and experience through life, the truth of who God is, it's already planted in their minds and their hearts, right? It's kind of like, you know, if your kids, you wouldn't keep your kids from learning about math in school just because you say, well, I mean, they're not doing, they're not being an engineer right now. You know, they're not uh, doing equations of science and science experiments, but you wouldn't withhold them learning math even if they're not practically using it currently, but what's happening as they learn the simple addition and subtraction and division and multiplication, what are they learning? They're learning how to apply those truths to real daily work one day. Same thing. As you teach your kids the truth of Scripture, you may think, well, this is over their heads. Do they really know what that means? It's okay if they don't know what it means, right? If they're at that young age, just start memorizing scripture with them, start memorizing these catechisms, and that is going to pay off in the long run, right? So that's in the mornings. Uh, so in the evenings in our home, I'm currently reading through the Jesus Storybook Bible with them. And so we'll read the Bible story, and I try to ask them a question or explain like one big truth from the story, right? But again, that's just where we are. And I just say that as an example for you, right? That's just where we are with young children. But hey, you may have a fifth grader, you may have a teenager. So whatever teaching diligently looks like for you, it's going to be different for all of us in different ways. But please take this word of encouragement. There are so many great resources for you to rely on out there. And at the end of the sermon today, I'm going to give you a list. We're going to post it on Facebook tomorrow. So I want, you to, I want you to see, man, there's great resources out there. If you don't know where to begin, if you have trouble, you know, understanding the scriptures yourself, let the resources work in those ways for you. But you've got to set aside that time for structured teaching, okay? All right, second thing we see in verses 7 through 9 is not just structured teaching time with your kids, but ongoing conversation and demonstration, Right? Ongoing conversation about God and demonstrating from your own life about who God is. Okay? So look at verse 7 again. Not only do you teach, but and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. So, right? so notice those key words there. You are actually talking to your kids. Okay? <laughs> so you're actually having a conversation with them about God's truth. And when? All the time, right? Throughout different moments of the day. In every just normal, ordinary life, right? Just normal circumstances. So that means that the conversation that you're having with your kids about the Lord and about his world that he created, it's kind of ongoing, right? It's never really ending. It's ongoing. But also think about it. If you're intentionally spending time with your kids, talking about God in those ordinary moments of life, 
then that means they're going to be around you a lot and they're going to watch your every move. So not only are you speaking to them verbally, as it says in verse 7, but you're also speaking to them with your behavior. So practically speaking, what, what do these two dynamics look like? The ongoing conversation, what does that look like? Well, I think it, it could mean that you are proactively looking for opportunities to talk about Jesus and the gospel in every little moment, right? Or, or one of God's attributes, or maybe you talk, you know, when you get the chance, you emphasize how important it is to serve others to your kids, right? Just little snippets of truth that you're embedding in their heart in the everyday normal life conversations. So like I said, in the Wilkes home, you know, our kids are young, so they're still learning a lot about and figuring out how the world works, right? I mean, most of their questions right now have something to do with either, you know, animals or pirates. And so I'm, my knowledge is limited, right? On both of those things. I'm not an expert on either of those things. So here's what we do is, is you know, we look, right? Christy and I will look for opportunities to share God's truth in some way. So for example, you know, if we see a sunset, right? Just a really beautiful, gorgeous sunset. We may point out God's creativity to them. And just say something like, hey, isn't that amazing? Isn't that so pretty? Man, that's so cool because that shows how God can make all of those colors. And God is really creative, right? And I know that seems simple, but at their age, you know what that does? It gets them thinking about how big God is. It gets them believing how great God really is. So another example, you know, when one of our kids does something wrong against another, which rarely happens, right? Uh, we, have, we have them say, I'm sorry, even if they don't want to and they don't mean it at all, right? Again, that's simple, right? And because why? We want them to practice reconciliation and forgiveness. So you have to say you're sorry, right? So whether it's something good or some bad behavior Regardless of your kids' ages, right, look for those opportunities to keep just pointing them to God's truth, pointing them to God's truth in all those little moments. Parents, you have millions of those little moments throughout your parenting lifetime to have those ongoing conversations about Jesus and the gospel, but also to demonstrate to them what obedience looks like. For the demonstration part of verse 7, parents, what you say and do or don't do is shaping your kids and how they think about the world. Again, to reference Chandler and Griffin, they say, willfully or not, all parents are perpetually discipling the children around them. Children are watching and listening to you as they form their impressions of the world, of faith, and of what it means to be an adult. Now, I know this is, this is convicting, right? This is convicting for all of us because you know why? All of us parents are sinners. We are sinners. And so we're, we're trying to fight the good fight ourselves in this spiritual journey of salvation that, and, and sanctification, I should say, that we are in. The Holy Spirit is sanctifying us as time moves on, Christian parents, but the way you reflect God's character to your kids matters more than taking them to ball practice or taking them to school or taking them to recital or whatever it may be. There is nothing 
that matters more. When they stand before God, he will not ask them how many home runs they hit. He will not ask them how the piano recital went. He will not ask them how good the report card in math class was, though those things are good and righteous and important. But only one thing will matter when they stand before God, the judge of all people. Have they surrendered their lives to Christ? Parents, let me say, let me say this. I know that it is not guaranteed that if you raise your kids to love the Lord, that they will. Salvation is not dependent on you, parent. So don't put that burden on you, but here's the burden you do bear. Salvation is of the Lord. The Holy Spirit is the one who saves, not you. But you are. You are the vessel that Jesus wants to use to reach those kids and make them disciples. So we can't take it lightly. Paul Tripp, in his book on parenting, says, No parent gives mercy better than the one who is convinced that he desperately needs it himself. That's what our kids need to see. Just humility. Patience. A real love for God. If our kids can learn about God by seeing his character coming out of our own behaviors, parents, that is success. Lastly, real quick, the last thing we see here in verses 8 and 9 are constant reminders. Constant reminders of all of these things we talked about today. Look at this, verse 8 and 9. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now notice these are, these are visible reminders of God's truth, right? Now listen, that doesn't mean that you have to have a sign from Hobby Lobby hanging in your house that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, okay? But you know what? If you do, that is great, okay? That is great, but you don't have to do that, but you can, right? This doesn't have to be literal physical reminders, but it sure can be. So let me say this. Hey, if having decorative pieces of art with scripture printed on them in your house, if that will help be a constant reminder to you of God's grace and the importance that you've been given of discipling your kids, then by all means, hang that on your wall. If a handwritten index card with scripture that you wrote on it to memorize, if you tape that to your bathroom mirror, and so you memorize that verse so that you can remember to live it out and teach it to your kids, then by all means, write it out and tape it to the mirror. Whatever you have to do, create those constant reminders in your home so that you don't forget that you have an, an obligation as a Christ follower to be obedient to the great commission of Jesus. And that starts, it starts with the little souls that you've been entrusted with. What a wonderful opportunity. What a great way to make disciples. Let God's truth get into your heart and declare and determine that your home is going to be governed by God's word. Can we do that, parents? Grandparents, aunts, uncles, 
anyone who spends time with these precious little children, can we do that? Can we show them that as for me and our house, yes, we will serve the Lord. God's word, not my opinions, not society's opinions, but God's word will be what drives this home, what governs this home. Can we make that true? Are we willing to sacrifice parents, fathers, husbands, wives, mothers? Are we ready and willing to sacrifice our own desires and our own comfort and lay our comfort down and our own idols down so that we can pave a way that our kids can see a real heart that loves Jesus and that wants nothing more And all the great extracurricular activities they do wants nothing more for them to be little disciples of Jesus too. How can you constantly remind yourself of these great truths? I challenge you to think of a creative way to do that this week. And then Hobby Lobby can thank us later. All right. I want to give you some resources real quick as we close here. I just want to flash these on the screen uh, these are great books and devotions. Um, so if you want to write some of these down right now, you can. I'm going to also, we're going to post this on Facebook tomorrow on the Kernan page, so you'll see them again. But here's some helpful books and devotions for family discipleship uh, for toddlers. The big book of Bible stories is really good. Lifeway publishes that. Uh, like I said, I'm reading right now through the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones with my kids, six, five, and two. Uh, The Biggest Story is another good one, Kevin DeYoung. Long Story Short, Marty Mikowski. Dinner Table Devotions are great. The Disciple-Making Parent, I reference Chap Bettis. Family Discipleship, excellent book on basically the whole idea of what we're talking about today. Um, Hey, some great music, all right? This is an easy way to get God's Word into your child's hearts, singing Scripture. And there's some excellent, really good quality music out there, parents. Uh, You can listen to in the car with your kids. Uh, Sovereign Grace Kids. Man, there's an album um, that they've put out. It's so good. Uh, I I love it. It's like singing the theology of Jesus and God in the Bible. Uh, It's just really good stuff. Quality is great, too. Sovereign Grace Kids. Seeds Family Worship is good. Uh, Renco Kids are great. So anyways, these are just some ideas. Again, we're going to post these on Facebook, so you don't have to jot it all down now. But... But here's what I want to say as we, as we wrap up today. Listen, parents, we aren't demanding, we're not demanding perfection from our kids. That's impossible, but that's exactly the point. It's impossible because of sin. You see, what our kids need to know is that they don't have to be perfect because somebody has already been perfect for them that God is both a holy judge and he is also a loving father, both equally at the same time. And the only way to be adopted into his family is by his grace through faith in Jesus. We had two of our families here at Kernan finalize adoptions Friday in court. And we're so happy and celebrate that with them, the Shepherd family, the Combs family. But you know what? Your adoption into the family of God was settled in the court of heaven when Christ paid the penalty of your sin. That's what we want our kids to know. 
that he is alive. He rose from the grave to give them new hearts and new lives. At the end of the day, we should want the same thing for our kids as we want for ourselves, for the gospel to be at the front and the center of everything we do, for our greatest affection to be Jesus himself. Can you pray with me and ask the Lord to make that true of your home? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that you lived the perfect life in our place. So we, we don't have to be perfect, Lord. We can't. Our kids can't be perfect, and they will never be. But Jesus, you were perfect for us, and you were perfect for them. And that's why you came to earth, to do what we couldn't. You became human so that you could take our place on the cross. That was the death we all should have died. But Lord Jesus, you died it in our place. And you rose from the grave. You've defeated the power of sin and death over us. So Lord, as we turn to you, as we steer and shepherd our kids' hearts towards you and this beautiful truth, Jesus, we rejoice knowing that real new life is possible in your name. Eternal life is our reward. So Lord, I pray for every parent or guardian or grandparent, aunt and uncle, cousin in this place, every person who has an impact and an opportunity to raise up the next generation, Lord, would you show us great grace as we are faulty sinners ourselves. But Lord, may our eyes and our greatest supreme love be set and fixed on you, Jesus, so that we follow you and we can turn around and look behind us and see our kids following us as we follow you. That's the footsteps we want to lay for them to follow. Jesus, it's your footsteps with ours walking in yours. So Lord, help us. Jesus, show us great grace as we seek to do that. Give us the practical ideas and resources and, and just ways to figure out how to make time in our busy lives to do this well with attention and care. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are, for rescuing us, for the mission you've given us, even in our own homes. It's in Jesus' name we pray.